Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So let's now go to the Lord again and ask for his blessing upon the word. Father in heaven, we now come to you as your dependent people. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You have words that you have spoken to us today. It is now for us to hear them. Please cause us to hear them. Let us hear your voice. Let us not harden our hearts against your word. But let it have its way with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, how many of you would say that your life is busy? I'm guessing most of us would. We live in a relatively frenetic society, always on the go, always on the move. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, U.S. workers work an average of 1,791 hours per year. That's in contrast to an average over the whole 38 OECD member countries who work less than that, work only an average of 17 116 hours per year. So the U.S. workforce works about 294 more hours than workers in the U.K. in the course of the year. Compared to Germany, 442 more hours than workers in Germany, which means that the U.S. workforce is averaging eight and a half additional hours of work per week. That's a full shift. We've got lots to do. And despite the fact that we constantly bewail how busy we are, because we do do that, don't we? We, It's it's common, oh my goodness, so busy. I think on the whole, we're actually a little bit proud of it. We're not sitting around on our duffs. We're responsible people. I think think there's, there's something that we gain, a satisfaction we gain from that. Also, I think we're not quite sure what we would do if there were space in our schedule other than spend more time on our devices. As a society, we just aren't really good at real, quiet stillness. We aren't good at rest. We're a restless people. And in the midst of all that busyness and all that craziness, the Lord cuts through it with this command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now we're in the middle of our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, which were given to Israel on Mount Sinai and which form the central core of the Mosaic or Sinai covenant. And over the last three weeks, BJ's covered the first three commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall make for yourself no graven image. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And this Sabbath command now is the fourth of the ten. 
But what does God mean when he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? What exactly is he commanding? And what are the implications for a bunch of crazy, busy, self-sufficient 21st century Americans that fill this room? All right, well, let's dive right in and consider what the Lord actually commanded. We've already read the Exodus 20 version. I want us to turn and look at two other restatements of this Sabbath command, which I think is going to help flesh things out. So turn over a few pages to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31, same book. Look for the big numbers, 31, and we're going to read verses 12 through 17. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I make you holy. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And now, go over a few books to Deuteronomy chapter 5. That's on page 150 in the Blue Bibles. Just trying to see how God fleshes out this command. Different things come out in different versions. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 12. This is actually in the Deuteronomy version of the Ten Commandments. Verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the command, is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. All right, well, what can we gather from these complementary passages about how Israel is to keep the Sabbath? Number one, In six days, they are to work and do all their labor. Work is the good and normal thing for human beings to be doing. Work is not, as some people think, a part of the curse, a part of the fall. Work existed before the fall. Adam was given to tend the garden and to work it. Even because of sin, now work is toilsome and it's difficult, and yet it's still a gift from God. They work for six days. Then the six days of work are to be followed by a day of rest, during which no work is to be done. 
This is blessing. This is grace to Israel to have one day holy or set apart for the Lord on which they can rest from their labor. Number two, it's to be enjoyed for everyone in the community, including servants, including animals. It's not a blessing just to be enjoyed by the few, by just the folks that have means, just the the high ones in society. No, everyone is to be blessed with rest. The lowly as well as the high are to be blessed with this blessing of rest. Number three, the one who disobeys the command and profanes the Sabbath day is put to death and cut off from the covenant community. This is really serious business. God really, really wants them to rest. Let's look at its grounding. How does God ground this command? Well, number one, it's grounded in creation. In creation. The two Exodus texts connect the Sabbath back, all the way back to what God did in the very beginning. Because in six days, God created the world and everything in it. In other words, he worked for six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. God himself established the pattern for work and rest. Now, of course, it's not that he's wearied from his labor and had to cosmically sit down, but he intentionally lays down his work and enjoys it. And in so doing, he set apart the seventh day as holy. This sets the pattern for for Israel. They're also to treat it as holy. But it's not just grounded in creation. It's also grounded in Israel's redemption. And this is what we see from the Deuteronomy text. The reason that Deuteronomy gives for them resting is, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There was no rest for them in Egypt. There was no rest at all. Only bondage and hard labor. See, Pharaoh wasn't big on vacations. He didn't have a list of personal days that you could take. No, the slavery under hard taskmasters that they had before in Egypt has now given way to freedom and redemption and rest because of God's deliverance. So we see that the Sabbath looks backward, backward to creation, backward to their redemption out of slavery. But it also looks forward See, throughout their wilderness wanderings, they've just begun their their wanderings at this point when they get to Sinai, throughout their wilderness wanderings, God promised to give them a better rest. He promised to give them rest in his presence in the land of Canaan. Canaan was the land of rest. And there God was going to provide for them milk and honey. Now, they haven't entered the rest yet. But it was up ahead. He was willing that it should be theirs. So the Sabbath rest points to the rest of the promised land. And that means, friends, that it ultimately pointed beyond that. See, the promised land itself, the rest of the promised land, was only a type, only a foreshadowing. The promised land represents being with God as his people, knowing the blessing of God, being in fellowship with God, and living under his kind rule, provided for 
with everything that they need. The promised land represents rest and peace. Where's that idea fulfilled? Where's it heading? To the true promised land. To the new heavens and the new earth when God will dwell with His redeemed people forever and they will see His face and their cares and toilsome labor will forever be at an end. See, the Sabbath points backward, but it also points forward to final and everlasting rest. That's where it's going. That's where it's headed. And this helps us see the why of the fourth commandment. Why would he, why would he command this rest? This is how I'd sum it up. The Sabbath was commanded to show us our utter dependence on God for absolutely everything. Our de- utter dependence upon God. Think about it. A day of rest attacks our self-sufficiency. It attacks our self-sufficiency. They had to pause in their labors and depend on his provision. Now, actually, the first time God told Israel about the Sabbath was in Exodus 16, two months after they left Egypt. God first provides manna for them, and it's a painful. Exodus 16 is painful to read. See, the people passed through the Red Sea just two months before, They watched as God brought them out of Egypt with great signs and wonders and a mighty hand, saved them from all their enemies. They saw Pharaoh and his army destroyed in the midst of the Red Sea. And two months later, they're already grumbling because there's no food in the wilderness. And they say, oh, that we had died in Egypt. That's what they're literally wishing for, that they had died in Egypt. And God graciously hears their cries. And he provides for them with bread out of heaven. And the manna appears on the ground every morning, almost every morning. And God says, okay, here's the bread. Just gather enough for today. It's going to be there tomorrow. Just gather enough for today. Don't leave it for the next day. Don't get leftovers. He's calling them to believe. He's calling them to trust him that he will provide. But some of them refuse to trust. They try and store it up for the next day. Manna casserole reheated the next day. But it goes bad, and it breeds worms, and it spoils. God's not happy with them. They won't believe. Then the sixth day comes. God says, okay, it's different today. Because tomorrow's the Sabbath day. So today, gather enough manna, enough food for today and for tomorrow. This time it'll keep. Be on the ground tomorrow because I want you to rest. Trust me. Believe me. Will they do it? No. Once again, they don't trust his word. They go out to look for it on the Sabbath day. And they don't find any. See, they think they know. They think they know better. They think they must provide for themselves. They think they cannot trust the Lord. And God says, how long, this is two months in, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments? It's going to be a long 40 years. 
and he's not pleased with their lack of faith. See, Sabbath attacks our self-sufficiency. It attacks our arrogant self-assurance that we know what is best for ourselves. When God is the one who knows what you need and who will provide it. Well, that's just a foretaste of what will be Israel's repeated, abject failure to keep the Sabbath command. Israel fails to enter God's rest through unbelief. Ultimately, they steadfastly refuse to believe God that he will provide for them. So after Sinai, God leads them up toward the promised land, which is the land of rest. He leads them toward their Sabbath rest. Moses sends out the spies. They check out the land. And most of them, 10 of the 12, come back and they say, Oh, it's glorious. It's wonderful. It's a fruitful land. But we can't take it. We can't take it. The inhabitants of the land are too fierce. They're too numerous. They're too tall. We can't do it. We can't do it. And the whole congregation of the people give themselves up to weeping. And they say again, again they say, would that we had died in Egypt. And they despise the promise of God. He has promised that he will give them rest in the land, but they can't see it working God's way. And so they refuse to enter God's rest. And instead they rebel and they say, let us choose a leader and return to Egypt. Let's go back, folks, back to slavery. Back to slavery. Instead of rest, they want slavery. Now God's wrath is kindled against them because of their stubborn, rebellious unbelief. Again and again and again they have disobeyed, they have failed to trust, and now he's had enough. And he swears, they surely... They've read it in Psalm 95. They surely will not enter my rest. This generation, the generation that saw his signs and wonders and and now is refusing to go in, they will never enter Canaan. They will never enter into true salvation, rest, because they go astray in their hearts and do not know his ways. He declares that they're going to perish in their unbelief, and they do. And this, friends, shows us one more sign why God gave us the fourth commandment. Sabbath rest attacks our self-righteous independence. See, Israel and we also have by nature hardened hearts that are determined to go our own way. I will not trust I will not believe God. I will not rely on Him for what I need. I refuse to be a creature content to be commanded. I will be an independent agent. Can you not see that in yourself? You, by nature, refuse God's rule. You refuse His rule. You refuse His provision. You refuse his ways. And so the prophet says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. God says, believe me. Obey me. Trust me. I will provide. 
Keep still. Stop striving. Rest. And we say, no way. No way. Ultimately, what we are saying is, we will justify ourselves. We will be right in our own eyes. Friends, what's the upshot? The Sabbath command was given to teach faith. To teach dependence. Our dependence as frail creatures in need of God's provision and dependence as broken sinners in need of God's salvation. We're supposed to find rest in Him. Now Israel broke the command. They would not enter the rest. Neither would we. Neither they nor we have ever remembered the Sabbath day to keep it holy because we all refused God's rest. And so faithless Israel broke the covenant. That means God needed to find another covenant partner, someone who would prove faithful where Israel was faithless, someone who would keep the Sabbath holy Israel had defiled it. And that someone, of course, was Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came and kept the Sabbath holy. Now, how did he do this? How did Jesus fulfill the Sabbath command? The pattern of work and rest. Now, by the time of Jesus' incarnation, Israel actually thought they'd solved the problem. They were now really intent. Think about the Pharisees. They were really intent on keeping the law, especially the Sabbath law. They wanted to make absolutely sure that they were resting. And so they put lots and lots of effort into making sure that they were resting and that everybody else was too. And so the Sabbath got twisted and perverted as they put hedges around it. It wasn't a beautiful resting from work anymore. It had become this burdensome thing. The Pharisees and the religious leaders had so hedged the Sabbath in with regulations and rules and you mustn't do this that there was essentially no room for giving help or showing mercy or doing good on the Sabbath. For all those things would be work. In Philip Ryken's commentary on Exodus, he explains how bad things had gotten. This is one of the, of the regulations. If a wall fell on somebody on the Sabbath, a wall falls on someone on the Sabbath, you're allowed to clear enough rubble away to ascertain the guy's condition. If their injuries are severe, you can proceed and rescue them. If their injuries are not severe, then you leave them under the wall until the Sabbath is over, then you can rescue them. This is the context into which Jesus came. A perverted Sabbath. So what does he do? He comes and bursts open all of their categories. Matthew 12, Mark 2. His disciples are going through the fields on the Sabbath. They pick heads of grain because they're hungry. The Pharisees object They raise a fuss because they're reaping on the Sabbath. Jesus says, no, 
He says, nope. It's all about me now. I'm the son of man. I'm greater than David. I'm greater than the temple. I am God's salvation come in the flesh, and I have the authority to interpret the Sabbath correctly, and these men are guiltless. See, I am Lord over the Sabbath. And he goes right into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He sees a man with a withered hand, and he asks, he looks at them, that he knows they're, they're just lying in wait for him. What's he going to do? Is it lawful on the Sabbath, he says, to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? What would it have meant for Jesus to leave the man in his withered condition on the Sabbath? It would be to do harm, to destroy But see, the Lord of the Sabbath knows that the Sabbath was made for the good and the blessing of man. And therefore, he stretches out his hand and heals. And he practices mercy on the Sabbath. He offers release. See, it all boils down to a question of who Jesus is. If he's the Messiah, then he has the authority over the the Sabbath to interpret it rightly. But then it, it it gets richer. See, his identity also affects how he must keep the Sabbath, how he himself must keep the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he goes and he heals the invalid by the pool. And this is what it says in John 5. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And I, myself, am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. His father is always working, and he himself is working for our good for our good. He has been sent by the Father who has anointed him to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's got work to do. He must complete that work before he can rest. And his work isn't finished yet. So he works. Not in violation of the Sabbath, but in keeping the Sabbath. He shows mercy. He does good. But one day, one day, his work would be finished. See, he spent three years of his ministry preaching and healing and delivering and showing mercy and restoring from brokenness. And then all that remained was one final task. But it was the hardest work of all. And in obedience to his father's command, he sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And he allows himself to be betrayed and tried by wicked men and delivered over to death. And for his final labor, he heaves up onto his shoulders a great and heavy load. It's our sin. And on the cross, he lays himself down with the crushing burden of our sin, and he bears it 
in our place all the way, all the way to the end. And then after enduring the incalculable anguish as God's anger against that sin poured down upon the sin bearer, we sing, it was my sin that held him there. When? Until it was accomplished. And finally it was accomplished. John 19, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so he put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He finished the work. He finished the work. It's done. The work of man's redemption was accomplished. And then what does he do? In the act of supreme dependence and trust, he cries out one last time and yields his spirit to his father, and he dies. And if you will, he rests. He rests all that next day, which was the Sabbath day. Jesus rests in the quiet tomb. And then as day draws dawns on the first day of the week, he springs back into action. And he rises up out of the sleep of death to a new and glorified resurrection life. And the age of the new creation has happened. It's not the old creation anymore. Work, then rest. Now it's the age of the new creation. Work, then rest. Jesus has done it. He's renewed all things. And now, friends, consider Jesus and his situation now. It's kind of weird, but pretty cool, actually. When he ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, what did he do? He sat down. He sat down at his father's side on his throne. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Rest until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus now has rest from all his toilsome labor. And yet, he is still working for our good. He has taken up all authority in heaven and on earth and has begun to reign. He's interceding for us before the Father day and night. He's extending his kingdom until it reaches the ends of the earth. So you might want to say it this way. He's still working. Toil is done. His toilsome labor is done. He is at rest and is enjoying the fruits of his labors. But it gets even better than that because he isn't a bit stingy. He turns around and gives us the fruit of his labors. He did the work. He gives us the paycheck. By faith, we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ all the redemption, all the adoption of sons and forgiveness of sins and justifying righteousness and resurrection life and freedoms from sin and power from sin and sure and certain hope of the inheritance. All that he gives to us, he gives it away. We cash the check. Now, how do we follow this Savior? How do we keep the Sabbath holy, having entered into faith in Jesus Christ. Well, 
It's not by observing a particular day. It's not by a particular day. You know, under the Old Covenant, the Sabbath rest was tied to a particular day, the seventh day. So for Israel, that meant that they were supposed to observe that particular day as the day of rest. But remember what BJ's been saying these last few weeks. Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant in his blood. The old covenant, which was made between God and Israel at Sinai, has been fulfilled and superseded by the better covenant. We're no longer under Sinai as a covenant. So when we want to look, know how the Sabbath commandment applies to us, we must first look at how it is fulfilled in and through Christ and then how it applies to us in and through Christ. Okay, put a pin on that for a second. We're going to see how we are to keep Sabbath in Jesus in a minute. But let's look briefly at what the Apostle Paul has to say about particular days. All right, in Romans 14.5, you don't need to turn, but I'm going to turn quick. Romans 14.5, this is what Paul says. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay, so you want to observe one day as more than any of the others? That's fine. You want to observe all days alike? That's fine too. He doesn't hold us to the one seven command. Colossians 2 gets even a little more explicit. Colossians 2, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, what you can eat, what you can't eat. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These things are the shadows of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath, you see, is an observed day of rest, and it's part of the shadows which has given given way to the substance which is found in the gospel. Now, an obvious question you might have is, have things just moved to Sunday for us? Like, is, is Sunday now the Christian Sabbath? And I'd say, no, I don't believe it is. The Sabbath was set apart as a day of rest, not actually as a day for gathered worship. Now, it's true that by Jesus' day, they had begun to gather on the Sabbath for worship, but that practice wasn't actually established under the Mosaic Law. Well, what is the Lord's Day then? What is the Lord's Day? Well, very early on, and several New Testament texts allude to this, it became the practice of the early church to gather on the first day of the week for worship. We call it the Lord's Day because it's on the first day of the week that our Lord rose from the dead. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. So ever since the first century, Sunday has been the day that believers have used for corporate worship. But it wasn't necessarily conceived of as a day of rest. See, Sunday was, after all, a work day in the Roman Empire, It would be until the day of Constantine, until the time of Constantine. So everyone expected that they'd worship and they'd work on Sunday. The idea to bring together the idea of Sabbath rest with Lord's Day worship and envision a Christian Sabbath on Sunday is actually a later development. 
So we, yeah, they, they seem similar, but, but they're actually not really all that similar. We worship on the Lord's Day in honor of our risen Savior. But that is not a replacement Sabbath. It's something else. It's something different. Okay, but if the Sabbath day is part of the shadows, then what's the substance? How do we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? In Christ. All right, remember how I said that the purpose of the Sabbath command is to teach dependence on God. It calls us to accept our need for provision and redemption. In the Sabbath, God calls us to repent of all our self-sufficiency and all our self-righteousness and to rest in His Son by faith. You're a creature. That means you're totally dependent. You're not even keeping yourself breathing right now. You're not even causing your own heart to beat. That is the Lord's doing. You need Him for every aspect of your life. In His hands are your life breath and all of your ways. You need Him to tell you what is good for you. You need Him to teach you what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. But you did not like that. You wanted to be independent. You wanted to be self-sufficient and establish your own ideas of right and wrong. You thought you could make your own way, chart your own course, decide for yourself what was good and what was not good. And so you rebelled. You rebelled against God's ways and you thought you'd thrown off your dependence upon Him. But that wasn't what actually happened. What actually happened is you were deceived by the enemy. And when he tempted you to make a bid for freedom from God and you listened to him, he took you captive and made you his slave. Boy, the enemy, the enemy employs a hard taskmaster. And that taskmaster is sin. Sin reigns over you and strong arms you into doing the very opposite of what you know to be right. You know you ought to love, and yet you can't, you can't help but find yourself behaving in various hateful ways. And try as you might, you can't stop. You can't stop. It's not that you don't want to, it's that you can't. Are you getting weary yet? Maybe you decide you're going to reform. You're going to turn over a new leaf, become a good person, and live according to a code of morality. Maybe it's God's moral code. Maybe it's one you develop on your own. Regardless, you try, and you try, and you strive, and you strive, but again and again, you have to acknowledge it's no good. You're still chained to sin. You can't live up to the standard you've set for yourself, even for a single day. If you're willing to see it, your burden of sin is increasing hour by hour, getting heavier and heavier. And then deep down in the back corner of your mind, you know that there is a God who will bring you into judgment for these things one day. Are you willing to see yourself rightly? Your chains, your labors, your wretched self-reliance, 
your failures and sin and guilt, your strivings that don't get you anywhere? Are you getting weary yet? Because Jesus is calling. And he says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Friend, if you're still laboring under the burden of sin, and you're weary of its heaviness and weary of all your strivings to rid yourself of it, then hear his voice. Remember the great work that Jesus has accomplished on the cross on behalf of sinners just like you and believe in him. He says to you, lay down your burden because I will bear it. Let go your pride. Let go your self-sufficiency, your self-righteousness. Just come to me. And this gracious invitation is still available to you today. But it's it's only for today. Just as the manna was only for today. And you don't know how long today will last. Someday, tomorrow will come and Jesus' offer at that time will be withdrawn. And then it will be too late for you. But it's still today. It's still today. Today there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so the scriptures plead with you, and I plead with you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Friends, this is how we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, by believing in Jesus completely and taking the rest that he offers. And there's another part to New Covenant Sabbath keeping. Yes, we who have come to Christ, praise God, we enjoy rest for our souls right now. But there's a better rest still coming. Remember, the Sabbath looked forward to what? The salvation and the rest of the eternal promised land. We haven't entered that final rest yet, and we now must strive to enter that still-to-come rest. The writer of the Hebrews warns us that the same thing could happen to us that happened to Israel. He gives a strong warning in chapters 3 and 4. He's writing to a group of Christians. They're going through a tough time, difficult hardships. They're tempted to abandon their faith in Jesus. And the writer says, oh, take care. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, as long as it's still today, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's a word for believers as well as for unbelievers. See, he reminds them how that first faithless generation, he, they saw everything. They saw God bring them out of slavery with a mighty deliverance. They went through the sea. They heard God's voice on the mountain, but they still hardened their hearts in unbelief. They failed to enter the rest 
for unbelief. And then the writer turns to us and says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. You've heard the gospel. So did Israel. But it didn't benefit them. It didn't, they didn't believe. They fell. So might you, he says. See, we haven't arrived. God's eternal rest is still ahead. It isn't secured quite yet. You haven't crossed over into the true promised land yet. Make sure you do. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore strive for that rest so that not one of you fall by the same sort of disobedience. Brothers and sisters, here's the upshot. We must work hard to rest. We have believed in Jesus. Now we must hold fast faith in Him right until the very end. And we can't give up and we can't turn away from Jesus. Because the promised land is still coming. It's going to be glorious. But we've got to like the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. He comes to the cross. He's relieved of his burden. Jesus gives him rest, but then he must still walk faithfully and persevere through many dangers and toils and snares until he reaches the celestial city. So let us heed the warning. Let us strive to enter God's rest. Let us take care there be in any of us an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then let us help one another on the pilgrim way and exhort one another, encourage one another day after day, lest we be hardened by sin. This is the other aspect of Sabbath-keeping we find. Does that mean there's nothing for us here in the fourth commandment of just plain ordinary rest? Yeah, I think there is. I don't think it's primary. But clearly God intends for us to follow patterns of work and rest. And this too is part of faith. Some of us, I think there's, there's kind of two camps, or maybe some of you like me fall kind of into both. Some of us tend to be frenetic and fearful. You think that everything depends on you. And so you work and you work, and you're busy, and you're worried, and you're weary, and you feel constantly uneasy and guilty. That's some of you. And what has happened? You've forgotten that you're a dependent creature, and you've reverted to self-sufficiency. But you simply can't do it all. And God doesn't expect that you will. He expects you to labor hard and then to rest and to believe that he will take care of things. He will take care of you. So your to-do list is long? Great! Work hard at it. But then remember, as C.J. Mahaney says, only God gets his to-do list done every day. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? It's a humbling thought. Only God gets his to-do list done every day. So yes, find rhythms of rest and sleep and accept your creatureliness. Understand that all your efforts are in God's hands and he's not a harsh taskmaster.
Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Some of us tend to anxious toil. But Jesus has given us rest for our souls. And he's building the house. He's watching the city. Trust him. Now others of us, and again I count myself among them, tend toward laziness. We get lazy, we get slack, we get presumptuous about the good work that God has set before us, whether it's our employment, or our marriages, or our parenting, or our pursuit of God's kingdom or our engagement with the church, or our fighting against sin, we get complacent, as if the work is all done. And that's a problem too. See, rest in Christ does not mean sloth or idleness, but it means actively working to persevere in faith. There's no room for laziness or presumption. Let us strive to enter the rest. That's how we remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, by faith. By faith, resting in the finished work of Christ for our salvation. By faith, persevering and following hard after our Master until we finally reached the promised land. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we ask you for you to give us grace to rest in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would stop our self-sufficient hearts, our independent spirits, and Lord, instead, embrace the salvation that he's provided. In Jesus' name.